1: Hey, this is Sabrina Horn, author of Make It, Don't Fake It. And if you want to build authentic relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Chapel and Eric Skwarczynski.
0: If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking Foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, Sabrina, welcome
2: to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. really happy to be
2: here. We love to take these conversations back to, you know, before business, like we want to talk about what pushes somebody in the direction that they go. So we want to go back to early childhood. Let's talk middle school, Sabrina. What were you like at that time? What was kind of the the interest in, and where did you see yourself going around that time?
1: So um, yeah, like, wow, middle school, that brings me back. Uh, I was kind of a shy kid in middle school and High school is not doesn't bring back the greatest memories, but um you know, for me, I, I think um, I always struggled kind of with communications because my first language was German. Hmm. My parents are both German immigrants, and um, was the first language I learned. So I kind of always struggled in English, <laughs> and and so communications was kind of my like my my thing, and ultimately, you know, I, I built my career in communications and. And public relations in my entire education is also in in, um, communications and media. But back then, I really wanted to be a reporter. I wanted Mm -hmm. to be a journalist because I thought it was so cool how they were always, you know, on camera or like pressing hard to like get answers out of um, closed mouth executives. I, I just thought maybe I could do that someday.
2: Did you have a certain person that kind of inspired you in that direction? Did you know somebody or was it just something that once you learned that, that job existed it sounded it sounded like a no-brainer?
1: Yeah, no, there really wasn't anybody who inspired me. I mean, in fact, my parents were both chemists and hmm. all the all those chemistry sets got stacked up in the closet every year. <laughs> no, I mean, I I think I just um it was sort of, honestly a love-hate relationship because I really struggled with writing. And, um, but I, I wanted to, to conquer it and I wanted to be a good communicator. And I, as I got older, I will add, you know, that I also felt like communication kind of makes the world go round and Mm. we all know what it's like when there's a failure to communicate.
2: Right. (laughs) So, yeah. So I'm always fascinated by, you know, obviously first generation Americans, you know, you, you hear the story of, you know, growing up with immigrant parents feeling, you know, that, that fish out of water Story and and trying to find the the your place within this new world, uh, so to speak. Did did your parents push you in a certain direction? Um, I, I know, obviously, you said you mentioned the chemistry set stacked up, but did they did they push you to pursue a certain career? Did they did you feel an extra pressure on you?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the only child of two German immigrants. Oh my God, they always told me to control my own destiny hmm. and that there's no free lunch in life and you know, that that you make your own luck, that luck doesn't exist. You have to make your own luck. And that was just infused in my, you know, it was in my DNA. It's just, was part of me. And so it made me pretty resilient and, you know, going my first job and then starting to have entrepreneurial aspirations of my own. My father was a serial entrepreneur. They just told me to (laughs) <laughs> to be successful <laughs> but <laughs> to do something that I that I love that can sustain my livelihood and that I would never really need to count on anyone else for my financial well-being. I mean, it's sure. essentially what it came down to. Yeah.
2: Right, right. So, where did that where did that land you coming out of high school? Did you go the route of doing traditional college? Did you just kind of pursue your own path? Like what was kind of the first steps going out on your own?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I was not a stellar student and uh, I, I mean, I did okay. I went to a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. I majored in American studies because back then they, they didn't have majors in marketing or business. And American studies was great because you could take a class in any discipline, as long as it said America in the textbook. And <laughs> So, you know, I I was a late bloomer and I really started to get interested in marketing and communications like kind of later on in my college career. And I decided to go straight through to grad school. I did Mm. not go out and work. I did internships during the summer and kind of started to hone in on the fact that I thought this was going to be my career path. But I went straight on to grad school and went to Boston University and got a master's in public relations. Mm. So you know, and then fr- from there, I worked for about five years, and got some experience. I knew enough to be dangerous, and um, started to think like, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe I can try my hand at this. And I certainly had enough role models and mentors, you know, in my parents and in uh, the women that I worked for with the, the company I was employed at, and thought, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just going to give this a shot.
2: Right, right. Uh, before we dive into that, because obviously your story of starting this company so early on is, is really powerful, but I, I'm curious, you mentioned internships and that's kind of the role that I took. Um, I, I didn't go to college and went straight into uh, a media internship and it was invaluable. Like, I feel like it, I wouldn't change that path at all. How valuable were those internships and in shaping you and how did they measure up to say like the traditional education versus kind of the practical hands-on experience?
1: Yeah. I mean, Um, I get asked that question a lot. And I mean, the internships were vital, right? Mm. In honing in on what I wanted to do with grad school and honing in on how I wanted to apply that to building a career after that. I worked for a a large corporation, actually the company that um, my father worked in was called WR Grace. And I got a job as an intern in their advertising department. And then I worked for an an agency called Burson Marsteller in Silicon Valley. And I did some research, started doing research then for my master's thesis and made decisions at that point that, you know, I didn't want to work on the corporate side. I wanted to work for an agency. I mean, it was just instrumental in getting practical real life experience to complement the education because it makes you think, right? One, the education helps you learn how to think but you need to apply the theory to something and the work experience makes the educational learning more valuable and brings it mm. to life
2: right right well you you started this agency with $500 <laughs> you started it after literally 5 years of of work experience and i i'm really curious especially you know you've written this book make it don't fake it mm. you know how did you balance that decision to you know, you know, enough to be dangerous, but obviously don't know everything. You don't have 30 years experience yet at this point, you know, you're, you're just diving into it. How did you decide you were ready? Like, when did you say, now's the time to go out on my own. Now's the time to make that jump.
1: Yeah. Well, um, back then I had a head full of steam Mm. and I had no leadership training, no management training. I did not have an MBA, right. I had a, a degree in PR. So, uh, I kind of knew how to do PR and I knew how to help launch a client. I knew how to help navigate them through the process, but I had no idea how to run a company. But all that being said, I felt like I was ready because I could handle the majority of the sorts of client situations that I had been exposed to and that I was already dealing with. Where I was in over my head was, after I started the company and we start were successful and we got more clients. And then all of a sudden I realized, you know, I can't just be like a manager of a team and a, and a good PR person. I need to become a business person. Mm. And that's where I was like a deer in the headlights sometimes. And, you know, through economic cycles and employee situations and client issues, you know, where, where, Boy, you wish you you had more experience to navigate those things. And that's where there's the temptation to fake it and and mm. do things that you know you wish you could do over.
2: Right, right. What how do you make the decision? Obviously, now, you know, you've grown this to such a large extent. You worked with some massive companies. How do you decide when it's time to learn a new skill? You know, like how to learn how to be the CEO versus when do you hire out that position when do you go to somebody and say i don't know how to do this you know i'm going to bring on a team member that does know how to do it better than i do versus when do you take the time to just sit down grind and educate yourself you know how to how to learn something
1: yeah i think it's also you know it's a, a partially a function of what you're interested in and what you're passionate mm-hmm. about yeah, you know, i definitely knew that i needed to hire a finance a finance director who could help me set up benefits and like health insurance and HR policies and things like that. That was not an area of expertise I was interested in or had any inkling of how to do. What little experience I did have in management and leadership, I had by observation and by, you know, managing a few people. And so I figured, well, you know, it's small enough. Whatever I don't know, I can ask the right questions. Right. I sought out mentors. Boy, did I, you know, I really... Back then, in the 1990s, having mentors wasn't really like a thing. They were right. like, more like advisors. It, it wasn't a popular term like it is today. But I definitely reached out to the people that I got to know by building my network <laughs> to, you know, be like, can I just ask you a stupid question and and right. know that I can trust them and feel vulnerable and and not uh, have it come back to bite me. And so I built up a network of those people who really helped me get through some tough spots. You know, and honestly, also, it, it can be lonely. It can be lonely being the, a CEO because there's no other CEO right next to you to talk to. Yeah. And you can't ask your employees because you're supposed to have all the answers. So it's really vital to develop that kind of private personal network of, of mentors or advisors.
2: Right, right. I'm curious about that—the authenticity, because there is mm. there's two parts of this. And I just spoke with a with a CEO of a pretty large company just the other day, and and was kind of talking through this. And you know, their their approach seemed to be the never let them see you bleed kind of approach. Like, you know, you don't want to let the team know there's a big problem. Like, right. you want to you want to be able to solve it first and have a solution. But I, I think also like there is this need for transparency, especially with startups, you know, like, like, you know, when there's a smaller team of people, you want to be able to know what's happening. Like you want your leader to be able to communicate like, hey, here's where we're at, this is where we're going. So how do you balance being authentic with your team versus like, you know, not just sounding an alarm every second and and freaking out your team and and making them want to jump ship because you're, you're oversharing. Like what's the, what's the balance there?
1: Yeah, it is a very delicate balance. And I did make the mistake of letting my hair down too much at times Mm. and expressing my concern over an issue or wondering out loud, you know, about certain things. And then it would come back where, you know, my employees were like, well, you know, Sab doesn't know what she's doing. (laughs) And, um, you know, your employees expect you to lead them. So you have to have those conversations with the right people. So perhaps it's your leadership team, your number two person, right? You you build a team of people around you so you can scale. And those are the people that are your executives, your executive team and that are in the inner circle who help you ultimately run your company. That's where you can have those conversations. Now, you know, uh, boy, you know, if, if you've had a bad day and you had a rough meeting with a client, you can, walk down the hall and talk to a few people, you know, on your team, your employees and say, yeah, you know, that was really tough. And I don't know. I don't know if we handled it right. Like, what do you guys think? And having a conversation about it and being sort of open and open-minded about their response, but connecting with them about that emotion is okay. The key in that is to show humility and approachability. Like what I mean by that is how do you think we could have done that better? Like, Mm. boy, you know, I, I don't feel like I answered his question very well. We, we need a better response to when this issue comes up, what do you guys think? Right. And, and then registering that, going back, coming up with whatever the fix is, a new process or a solution. And then sharing it back out with the people I talked to to close the loop is really the, I think is the right way to approach something like that.
2: Can you think of an example of a time where, you know, maybe you, you open something up to the team and you said, Hey, this is the problem and opened up about this situation and someone on the team, whether they were not higher up position or just one of the, the lower level team members came in and gave a piece of advice or insight that, that totally changed the, the trajectory there.
1: Yeah, I mean, more often than not, right? I mean, a good CEO is not necessarily the person who has all the answers, but who asks all the right questions Mm. and entertains the ideas and the solutions. It's like socializing an idea to see if it would work and finding potential solutions that you hadn't thought of. It creates an environment of collaboration, right? Because people feel like their ideas are heard and We may not implement all of them, you know, um, and there's good reasons why, but like, wow, that's a great idea. That, let's do that. Please help me do that. Hmm. That will fix this problem. Just go do it. (laughs) And and that happened all the time, all the time. Hmm. It gave me wings.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. Travis. Just go to indeed.com/slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you need Indeed. Well, I I definitely listen to the conversation
2: in the direction of networking, but first I do want to talk about something also that is a unique perspective. And Mm -hmm. you were in the in the early 90s, you were one of the the only female CEOs in the Silicon Valley. So like you were breaking through the glass ceiling in a lot of ways, like you were standing, standing out and really, really having a big, a big impact and, and changing, you know, like you were on the forefront pioneering this in a a lot of ways. Was it difficult, you know, getting, getting people to take you seriously? Was it difficult, you know, establishing yourself in that world where it was primarily male driven at that point? And, and what are the steps you took to, you know, show your expertise and your ability to handle these situations just as well as everybody else on the playing field.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, back then uh, there were far fewer female CEOs Mm. than there are today and there still are not enough today, but we're doing better back then. Like I said, I, I just had a head full of steam. I Mm. was smart. I made sure that we were buttoned up. I did my homework and I walked into these rooms that were filled with mostly men who were mostly older than me. And I don't think they quite knew what to do with me. I think they initially may have tried to test me, you know, see what I knew and, you know, this is how we're gonna do it. And then I would just, you know, basically put on my my Sabrina work face and just say like, well, no, actually, you know, if you do this, then X, Y, Z will happen. But if you do that, then ABC will happen. Mm. So you guys make the choice. I can support you either way. My recommendation is so-and-so. And I was very businesslike and I, I think I never fed into or felt like I needed to compensate for my gender. I never prepared for that before I walked into a meeting. I, I And I think I developed a reputation for that. Now, That's not to say that I didn't deal with gender bias. And and I wrote about this in my book, you know, thousands of years of gender bias isn't going to, you know, erase it for you, even if, if you're running your own company, right? I had a measure of control running my own company over who I wanted to work with and for. And there were many, many times when we had to fire a client because they behaved inappropriately with a member of my staff or were abusive and we did that during the recession, you know, when money was tight. And mm. I, I still remember that day that I called that CEO and I fired her on her way to the airport because she was terrible with my team yeah. and I'm proud I did that. But, you know, getting back to, to gender bias, I mean, I could, I could write another book about all the times that um, I had to deal with inappropriate behavior and, you know, you you just develop a skill set in terms of how you react to that. You know who those people report to. You know who those board members are. You ask around. You find out more. You use the proper channels to deal with them, or you fire them.
2: No, yeah. right, <laughs> right, no, no. That's that's definitely definitely interesting because that's what hit me with your with your story was you know obviously you've got the the immigrant background so you've got that and then you've got. You know, being a, again, being a female CEO when that was not the norm, you know, it's still not the norm. It's still, it's still, it's still a rare, uh, relatively new concept and there's still a lot of biases and things that, that are stacked up against that. So hearing that perspective of how you kind of took that on, it was really just by knowing your stuff and showing like, you know, I know how to handle this.
1: No, I, I was just going to add, like, I was always honest. Hmm. I was always authentic And authenticity also wasn't a a buzzword back then. And I didn't know how to be any other way other than straightforward. Like if you're counseling clients on how to handle a crisis, you have to be straight up with them. And I handled difficult situations with with people across the board in that way. And I think I earned a measure of respect for my candor. And Mm. it was almost in a way... uh, I got more respect for it because it would seemed to be so refreshing <laughs> in right. a world where, you know, most people are afraid to tell the truth or they feel like they have to compensate for, you know, something they don't know. And, um, I just didn't know any other way to be.
2: No, that's awesome. Well, I, I, Definitely want to steer the conversation toward networking. Obviously that's the the main crux of the show. And it, we've already sure. talked so much about how relationships were an invaluable asset to you. But I want to ask one question we ask everybody that comes on the show. And that is, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why?
1: Yeah, I, I had to think about that. Mm. A superb question. I think it depends on the phase of life you're in and where mm. you are in your career. So, and it changes For example, when you're first starting out out of college and you just really want to get a job, any job, you know, (laughs) and you would like it to be based on a little bit of what you know, but really you just want to get a job because you need a paycheck. At that point, it really is about who you know and who can open doors for you. And then you kind of navigate your way from there. But then as you grow into your career and you're establishing a personal brand, or say you're an entrepreneur and you build a technology and you have a patent for it, that it is very much about what you know. Mm. And that drives then who you know and who you're going to take that to. And then I think later on in your career, you've reached a period of sort of critical mass in your life. You have reached what you wanted to accomplish in your job. you got the title. You've, you know, all the people that you need to do business with, you're doing business with. And so you just sort of coasting maybe, you know, and but then say, say you want to do something new or you hear about something new and that new idea, that new challenge, it changes, changes the whole playing field. So you, A, you need to learn more so it is what you know, and then you need to surround yourself with a, perhaps a different circle of people. So I think the answer to your question is that there, are, at any given time, one or the other is more important but there is also a time when they're kind of equal. It, it depends on the phase of your career,
2: right? Can you think of a certain connection or relationship that you've had that led to a big moment of success, where maybe someone opened a certain door or made an introduction that that really had a big impact?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, like my first client, mm-hmm. <laughs> the when I was working for the other firm, Blanca Otis, and. I sort of had this idea that maybe I could strike out on my own. I wrote a press release for for my client. It was like a partnership kind of deal. And the VP of marketing uh, from the other company, which was PeopleSoft, called me and she said, hey, that was good. Do you want to like come and do that for us? And do you hmm. want to meet our CEO, Dave Duffield? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that I mean, yes, like... And and then I would say, you know, ninety, we were very fortunate knock on this glass table that we <laughs> built a reputation that was that was good and and strong. And 90% of the business that we won came to us through referral. Right. So that's how I built my company. Right.
2: And and how do you navigate those initial, you know, because obviously everybody has to have that first meeting or that first pitch or that first whatever, the introduction is something, but how do you manage that? Once you say yes, and that fear sets in and says like, okay, now I have to do this and I have to perform, you know, how do you navigate that first meeting? You know, obviously you want to show your expertise that you do have. You have a lot of the knowledge, you know, you went to this, you did know what you were doing, but (laughs) to some extent too, you'd never done it before. So how do you navigate that with confidence going into that first, that first meeting or that first introduction?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean you've got nothing to lose, right? I mean,
2: <laughs> right. You,
1: you figure if I don't get this one, maybe I'll get the next one and right. maybe I'll learn something from it. But I did set the bar pretty high. I thought, well, this is it. This is my shot. Right. And uh, PeopleSoft was a, a rising star at that time, but had not reached its stardom yet. There were many other companies out there, but I figured, wow! If I if I could if I could land this account, I would be in business. What a great first client no. that would be to start my company. And so I do what I, I I call in my book, disarming fear and organizing risk. I ask myself the questions that I would be afraid to answer. Like, uh, if if there's one thing that they ask me, like I can't get that question. Because I won't know how to answer it, that's the one I had to be able to answer. Hmm. And I made sure that I had all my bases covered. I was very clear with myself on what I wanted to focus on. Like, And I think this is key for a lot of people when they're starting out. They want to try and be all things to all people and you can no. lose your focus. And I was very clear with myself, like, this is what I can offer. This is what I'm good at. If we go outside of that core, I can bring on those services or partner with other firms to to deliver them. But if you want a firm that can do ABC, I'm the one that can do it for you. Mm. And so finding the first right customers is also, you know, is is critical in in that case. And um, I did did so much research. I had back then they call them overhead transparencies. I don't think they use them anymore. They put them on projectors and you project them onto a screen. I had 80 of them. Mm. (laughs) You know, I just show them that I I had the ideas that they didn't have themselves for how to cut through the noise and tell a complicated story to build their brand. I think that my passion for their business and the fact that, you know, I was just like standing up there basically saying like, look. I'm all I've got. Here's my plan. I'm going to put your name up in lights and I show them how. I think that they related to that. And maybe my passion was part of what made them choose me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think what you just said about narrowing it down to the two or three things you do really well is really important. I think everybody starts the, whether you want to say entrepreneurial journey, the freelance journey, like everybody starts, I think with the jack of all trades approach of like, I'll do whatever gets me paid, you know, because initially you're, you're driving the idea of an ideal client is an ideal client is someone that can write the check because I'm a broke student or I'm a broke, you know, 20 something trying to figure this out. And where business becomes a lot easier is when you do have those one or two things and you can reach out and say, I do this. Like, this is my core offering. If you want something else, there's somebody else and not selling out of that that desperation to just land another client Because that's when yeah. you start getting into trouble is when you're learning by doing everything that you're doing and you don't have this yes. one thing that you're focused in on. I think that's, that's really yes, important.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's where you start faking it, right? Yeah. Because you say, yeah, sure. We can do that. Or we can do this. Or yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and then you go back to your office and you're like, Oh my God, how are <laughs> we going to do this? Right. And you know, when you're starting out, the, the last thing you want to do is add more anxiety <laughs> to your right. plate. Right. Yeah. It's hard enough to do so, what you know
2: how to do, not, not to have exactly. to learn something from scratch.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the moral of the story is, you know, write write a well-focused business plan. Know who you are and know what you can and cannot do. And commit to being honest with other people and yourself about that. Because in the end, if you over-promise uh, certain things and you can't deliver, then you're just
2: going to sabotage yourself. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. You mentioned early in our conversation, you mentioned the importance of having other people that are in the same position as you, you know, like obviously people outside the team that are, you know, advisors, mentors, you know, fellow CEOs, how important have those relationships been to you throughout your career and how have you practically pursued those? Has it just been by being intentional about having lunches with these types of people? Have you been in formal mastermind situations? What's been the practical steps you've taken to network within your, your realm?
1: At the ben- mentor level or just generally?
2: I would say at the mentor level, like people that that either can resonate with what you're what, what you're doing. So they can either commiserate or just kind of talk about the same experiences, or people who are kind of formal mentors who are maybe a step or two ahead that you've kind of learned from.
1: The mentor relationships I had and how I found them and worked with them was different actually for each person. Sometimes, you know, their person might be super busy and um, they don't, you know, they don't want to have lunch. You know, they just want to work. Like, just call me, just call me, Sabrina, if you need me or send me an email and uh, and we can chat for a few minutes. And 10 minutes with that person is like gold, liquid gold. You know, other times I um, may have may have a mentor who's, for example, more of a person in the financial operations side of the business, and so maybe you know we need to sit down and like, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can we just meet down the street? You know, I want to run something by you, and I'm not sure how it works out. I need for coffee. You know, or. I know that they're going to be at a conference I'm attending, and I grab them and I say, "Hey, can we just sit down on that couch over there before we go into the next session?" You know. Yeah. And sometimes I um, there were a few years where we got them all together in one room, but it turned out to be extremely difficult, and it turned out to be less valuable for me because I had to spend all of this time preparing information to present to them, like like it was a board meeting rather than asking each person a specific question that would help me in that exact moment solve a problem. So um, I kept it really informal and it worked that way better for um, for all of them. I will also say that I encouraged my leadership team, my business partners, and the people who helped me run my company to have their own mentors. And you know, a mentor is it's not somebody you just meet at a conference or, you know, in a, in a meeting, like, wow, they're really important. I want them to be my mentor. Like, that's not how it works. Yeah. You have to have a, an emotional connection with them. You have to have chemistry with them. You have to sort of identify with their path and right. their, or their sense of humor, you know, and then, and then you kind of go from there I've seen, I've experienced this where young people will come up to me and they've read about me or they've heard about me and they're like, Hey, will you be my mentor? And it's like, well, yes, of course I will help you. But, but you, like you have, we have to get to know each other <laughs>
2: <Yeah. Is this laughs> before we get fit, married. right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, no.
1: does that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's building that relationship first. And really, I, I think a lot of times too, like like you said, people look at something as like they look at the accomplishments, and they say, "Oh, you had that," and that's definitely a big part of it. You shouldn't be mentored by someone who hasn't done what you want to do. But so few times do people look and say, "Like, what are they like emotionally? Like, what is their personality type? Are they extroverted, introverted? Do they, are they in sync with like my, you know, worldview and stuff?" And yeah. you know, I, I've talked about this even working with Travis, you know, I came on with him when he started the show he was five months into the show. And, you know, like the reason that we've worked together is not because we're completely identical personality types, but it's because we're in sync on all of the things that we need to be. And we complement each other where, you know, like I'm, I'm more extroverted. He's more introverted. I'm more, you know, like I, I balance out a lot of like the creative side where he's a lot more on the business side. Like there's, there's those pieces there, but we strengthen each other along the way. And so it's not, it's not necessarily a, a mentor relationship, but it's, it's one where we're helping feed each other in a lot of ways. And, and so many people just see the result and say, oh, I'll find that person. And I read their book and, you know, I think we'd be a good fit. You can't know that until you've built the relationship.
1: No, I think that you have to start with a relationship, a friendship first, almost, or a camaraderie. Or, you know, one of the most influential mentors I ever had was a man who I was having a drink with at a conference, waiting in line before we went into the next session. And I'd heard about him and knew about him through by reputation. But uh, And I was in awe of him. I mean, I, mm. I didn't think, you know, I, I would never, like, oh, even ask someone like that, like, will you be my mentor? Like, it That's just, right. we did, you didn't even ask people, will you be my mentor? It's like asking somebody out on a date. Like, it yeah. just it felt so awkward. It just sort of naturally evolved into that kind of relationship. And to this day, you know, if I e- email him, I'll get a response back within the hour. And yeah, he'll always give me the best advice I could ever hope for.
2: Yeah. No, that's, that's really awesome. And um, just one last question, before we transition to our random round for someone, mm-hmm. you know, you're definitely now, you know, you're saying you have people reaching out to you asking to be mentored. So you've come full circle, mm-hmm. like trying to find the mentor to now being the mentor. The relationship part is so crucial to that when someone reaches out, you know, cause at some point you're, you're doing a cold reach out. You're meeting someone for the first time, whether it's virtually uh, right now, probably virtually or in person. Yeah. How does someone introduce themselves in a way that can make them stand out? You know, if they want to see if that would be a good fit, if they want to take that first step, ask you on the first date, essentially, you know, what's the best <laughs> way to 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 do that? Is it just introducing? Is it trying to add value in some way? What's the best way to to introduce yourself to a potential mentor?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think the best way is a first of all to stand to ask uh, to reach out over LinkedIn or um, my emails on my website and say, you know, I'm a student at XYZ. I am interested in this. And I would love 15 minutes of your time to figure out if what I'm doing is on the right track. Because hmm. I mean that that's brave, right? That takes nice. courage. And I love how those people, when I speak with them, they have their questions already lined up and they're prepared and um, they're so buttoned up and it makes me so proud of them <laughs> that, <laughs> that I want to help them um, some more. You know, they, they're smart. They had their act together. But yeah. the first step is just, is just reaching out. And I, I don't expect um, a young person who's just out of college to add value to, to my career. Mm. I mean, I, if they, if they like my book or they had a question about it I mean that would be nice, but but really at this stage, I expect and I think that most other people who have achieved some status in their career ex- fully expect that they, you know, would do this out of the goodness of their heart. It's a way of giving back, and it's a pleasure yeah. to return the favor.
2: Yeah, and I, I love that you mentioned in the reach out. And this is just practical, good advice for the yeah. reach out. We tell we tell people this is you know, how you said, I'd love to get 15 minutes of your time where I have this specific question. And I think that's where I see a lot of people fumble the reach out, you know, even with reaching out to get a podcast guest to come on your show, you know, there's no clarity about how much of an investment are you asking? You know, if you're asking someone, Hey, will you be my mentor? That could be a lot, you know, does it mean you want an hour call each week to be able to say, here's what it is. Here's what I need. And here's how you can help. It takes away the homework for that person you're reaching out to, to figure out like, how can I help you? And it just says like, here's, here's what I need. And, and, you know, they may say no, but if they say yes, it's, it's a more likely chance they're going to say yes and try to help you in some way if they know what that entails. So um,
1: yeah, absolutely. Like if you frame it for me, right? And you know exactly what you're asking for. I may say, you know what, that's awesome. I just don't have the time to do all that right now, but I can do the first two or three things of what you just asked me. And, you know, I really, I really want to help you and I love what you're doing. Right. But if you frame it, it takes the, it makes it just a more efficient process.
2: Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, I I really appreciate the value brought in thus far, but I definitely need to move us into our random round section (laughs) of the show and uh, get to know you a little bit better here before we Mm -hmm. close out. What profession other than your own do you think would be fun to attempt?
1: Well, like I said, back in middle
2: school, I thought
1: maybe being a reporter Mm. would be kind of fun, but lately I thought um, being an architect could be really interesting. interesting. <laughs> so, is uh, like the creative side of me coming up?
2: Would you want to design like residential houses or are you talking skyscrapers? What are we going for?
1: <laughs> uh, no, I, I think um, kind of like more like uh, not skyscrapers, no, like residential, but also like parks, places where people can be outside. I think that's because we've been inside. for Yeah,
2: <laughs> for yeah. So much. It sounds like a good change of pace. So. <laughs> yeah. If you could sit on a park bench with somebody, past or present, who would that be, or why?
1: Well, so um, I will share that um, my mom passed away in December, hmm. and she's uh, almost ninety-three, and she passed away in her sleep peacefully. So, if I could sit on a park bench with with anybody, it would probably be my my parents. To ask them a few questions about some things that I didn't ask back then, right. and um, or when I should have or that I forgot. But the other person that I would love to talk to is Richard Branson. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Because he's done so many things. He's such a serial classic entrepreneur, who's you know built huge companies in many different industries and. So I, I just think I saw him once at a conference, I heard him speak and I, I'd love to sit down and talk to him someday.
2: Right. Yeah. That's a great <laughs> answer. What's the best way for you to learn? Do you like learning through books, audiobooks, blogs, or do you like watching videos? What's the best means of, of learning for you?
1: I kind of think like all of the above, honestly, I'm kind of old school. So I like books. I love good business books. Like, um, the the chasm crossing the chasm from Jeffrey Moore. Good to Great from Jim Collins. Mm. And then I love, love, love um, Ben Horowitz's books. He's a serial entrepreneur and a venture capitalist and he wrote The Hard Thing About Hard Things and another book about culture. So mm. I to I like long-form journalism. I like to immerse myself in, in a good book. And then I, I also like The Economist, frankly, for sort of broader in-depth pieces that matter around the world.
2: So. Right. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Uh, what's your, what's your morning routine look like?
1: Uh, my morning routine is taking care of these two very large four legged <laughs> pets. I have <laughs> and taking them for a walk and giving them breakfast. And um, then I do kind of like my own little exercise routine and I, I do all of my writing in the morning now and um, just taking care of personal business, you know, stuff I have to do to fix up the house. And then I save my afternoons for conversations with you. Well, awesome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, do podcasts and stuff like that in, in the afternoon.
2: Cool. Cool. What's your go-to pump up song? What's, what's playing in your headphones while you're taking care of these two large dogs in the morning?
1: Actually, I'm kind of like a quiet person in, hmm. in the morning. I kind of pump it up when I'm either running or jogging or on the elliptical. But that would probably be Motown. I'm a Motown girl. Any kind of remix of a Motown song, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, Santana, U2. That's not Motown, but that's good. That's good. Pump, <laughs> good pump it pump up, up music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: What's something you're not very good at?
1: I'm terrible at IT and computer issues.
2: Gotcha. Terrible.
1: <laughs> I have been trying for a month to figure out how this Yeti (laughs) nano microphone (laughs) works with these headphones and plugs into my laptop so that people can hear me. (laughs) It's just terrible.
2: Gotcha. So that's a good one to outsource is the IT IT stuff for sure. What is the best place online for people to find you? Obviously they can check out your book. They can head over to uh, sabritahorn.com book. And grab a copy of fake it to uh make it don't fake it but um where where else on social media can people connect with you if they wanted to get in touch or follow your journey
1: yeah I mean definitely LinkedIn that's where I am most of the time I'm also on instagram and a little bit on Twitter but honestly I think everybody's I think can find me on LinkedIn much more
2: easily. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope that people will go and check out a copy of your book. And I definitely hope people will connect on LinkedIn and just send you a one sentence message saying, will you be my mentor? I think that's the big takeaway from today's <laughs> episode. But uh, no, I really do appreciate all the great information that you've, you've given. And mm-hmm. like I said, I hope people will check out your book, follow some more of the resources that you provide on your site and uh, really get to, get to follow your journey a little bit more.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been great talking with you, and I, you know, I do hope that um, the advice that I've given is is helpful to some um, who are listening. And um, you know, if anybody wants to talk further about what their journey might be, I'd be certainly happy
2: to to talk to anybody. That's amazing. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Sabrina.
0: All right, thank you.